So I've got a great question I'm going to address today. This comes from Chris, and uh, I've had this one actually in my uh, stack of questions to get to for quite some time, and uh, it sort of got buried a little bit, so I'm glad to get to it finally today. And the reason I like this question so much is because it's just straight up talking about Jesus, and uh, I, I never tire of talking about him. So here's the question. Uh, Pastor Brian, can you tell us about the reign of Jesus Christ, past, present, and future? What is distinctive about Jesus Christ being prophesied to rule from the throne of his father David in the book of Isaiah? The angel Gabriel prophesied this also to Mary when he announced the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I would be very interested in learning about the differentiation between ruling from his heavenly father's throne as compared with ruling from David's throne. (coughs) Great question. And uh, again, there's nothing more uh, awesome than just talking about Christ, his person, his position, his uh, his reign, all of these wonderful topics. So Chris, thanks for asking the question. I really apologize for not getting to this one much sooner. Um, let me go ahead and, uh, uh, <laughs> okay, here's, uh, I heard someone, uh, just to give you a sense of like uh, the challenge to trying to uh, speak sort of comprehensively about this. Um, you know, someone once kind of quipped, uh, you know, a student in a class was given an assignment, uh, describe God and give two examples, you know, it's just, um, you know, how, how do you encapsulate the grandness of such a subject into, you know, any period of time, uh, not just a, a 20 minute podcast or something, but any length of time, John finishes his gospel by speaking about, or gets toward the end of the gospel, Speaking about how, um, you know, if all the things that Jesus said and did were recorded in books, there wouldn't be enough room in all the bookshelves in the world. Um, But these were specifically chosen that you might believe in the name of the Son of God. And so um, the idea of trying to, you know, cover that topic uh, in in, uh, a really, really meaningful way is quite the challenge. So we'll try and do what we can in in a relatively brief amount of time. But let me start by going all the way back. Um, If you go to Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26, uh, there is a, an interesting hint in the idea of the creation of man. And so in, in uh, verse chapter 1, verse 26, you may remember how, um, and I'll read the passage, how God says, "'Let us make man in our image according to our likeness.'" Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and so on. But here's that phrase, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, it is fair to say that God was not just talking to the angels. As a matter of fact, he was not talking to the angels. But there is something of a hint here into the, uh, into the um, communion and interaction between the members of the divine Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, or Father, Eternal Word, and Spirit prior to the Incarnation. And so, um, and the reason I say that with a sense of assurance is because there is no one like God. So how can you make someone, uh, if, if God says, let us make man in our image, there's a sort of akin to kind of thing here between God and whoever he's talking to in that statement. And so I would argue that he's not talking to the angels. He's actually speaking uh, in regard to, or he's speaking within himself, within the being that is God, yet eternally existent in three persons. Again, this concept of the Trinity. Um, and so we very, very, very early on in the scripture uh, begin to recognize something 
special, unique about the nature and character of God, beyond just his power and his magnitude in that. There's something intrinsic to his nature itself that is unique and mysterious and beyond us. And I think there's an echo of this. We're going to jump around to some passages today. So as always, hope you got your Bible ready to go. But having moved from Genesis 1.26, let's go to John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, where John tasked with equal, uh, an equally difficult task of trying to describe something of this mysterious nature of God uh, opens up his gospel uh, with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And uh, it goes on and says more, but that's enough for us to just kind of, as always, please do read the whole passage. Don't just stop because I stopped there. Read the whole thing. For time's sake, though, I'll just use this passage to kind of connect a few dots here. Um in John chapter 1, John, again, is tasked with this idea of expressing in human terminology something of the mystery that is the nature of God. He was with God, and he was God. He was in the beginning with God, painting this uh, right out of the gates in the opening stanza of his gospel. He begins to speak of the uniqueness of Christ and the unique relationship uh, of the eternal word who becomes flesh, but is eternal, and with God as we conceive God to be. Now, prior to the Christian faith, the, Jude- the, the Jewish faith, the faith of Israel, the Hebrew faith, was one of seeing God in a certain sense, in a certain way. Monotheistic, as is the Christian faith, but yet somehow God was, not somehow, it was just the way that uh, God described himself and revealed himself in the Old Testament gave hints of this idea of his triune nature, but the understanding among Israel was that uh, there is just simply one person within the being of God. It's just, you know, it's simple, straightforward, like we might normally be prone to think. Um, However, there are hints like this uh, throughout the Old Testament that bear witness to the idea that God's nature is beyond uh, anything that we would have assumed. There is, in fact, a triune nature a uh, Father, Eternal Word, and then in the Incarnation, Son, and Spirit. Uh, I like to sort of uh, speak of, 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 of the, the second person of the Trinity as both the Eternal Word, but also in the Incarnation, the Son. Um, and so this way we sort of help ourselves grasp a little bit more this idea of what's in, in view here. Of course, the Holy Spirit is, is referred to as God in places like... Um, um, you know, like Acts 5, for example, where, where Peter ascribes deity to the Holy Spirit and personality to the Holy Spirit. It's a fascinating passage to understand when you see what Peter is saying. But I, I mention this in regard to the Eternal Son because he is the creator of all things as deity, as God himself. He is one of the, again, forgive us, the, 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 uh, the difficulty we have in expressing this idea of the triune nature of God doesn't make it untrue. It just makes it difficult to, uh, to try and explain it in terms that, you know, human language can afford. And so um, when, we, when we understand that Christ is divine, that, that the eternal word is very God of very God, like the creeds would say, and then we ascribe to him creation— Nothing was made without him. 
making it. You know, in him all things were made. Uh, Colossians, another passage that's important in this regard. Um, Colossians chapter 1. Um, in referring to Christ, uh, um, uh, verse 15 and 16, he is the image of the, Im, uh, in the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses love to play with this and say firstborn, so he was created. No, firstborn in the sense of the origin and source of, and also having preeminence over. Uh, he, is, uh, he has preeminence as its creator over the creation. Uh, firstborn in the sense of, of again, uh, priority and prominence and, and preeminence and this kind of thing. Um, and he goes on to say, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist." And so, uh, again, the Jehovah's Witnesses at this point in verses 16 and 17 insert in brackets the word other, because in their minds, this adds clarity. It does the exact opposite. It takes away from what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul could easily have said other, but did not say that. He was very clear in what he was saying and ascribing deity to the Lord, preeminence to the Lord, and creative capacity and, and, uh, and the work of creation to him. And so, but I say this because in, in answering the question about his rulership and authority and lordship, um, he was in the beginning as the Lord of all creation. All things were made by him, and therefore, and, and to borrow again from Paul in Colossians, he is preeminent over all things. Now, this is true even in spite of the fact that, um, you know, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in Luke chapter 4, for example, Satan speaks of how, uh, as, as Satan takes him and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, all of these are mine to give to whom I will, and I will give them to you if you'll bow down and worship me. I'm paraphrasing, but you can read this in Luke chapter 4, verses, um, I did jot it down, 9 through, uh, uh, da, 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 or 5 through 8, I'm sorry. Well, even though Satan is called the god of this world, even though he is the prince of the power of the air, he is the spirit of the age and such, he's behind the spirit of the age, even though this is true and Christ is not exercising all of his full capacity and authority as Lord of all things, he ultimately still is. In other words, Satan is given space to serve the purposes of God in, uh, in redemption in ultimately in God being glorified. But don't think for a second that somehow Satan is free to do anything he wants at any given time. There is some parameter uh, that is put upon him by the sovereignty of God and by by extension, Christ's own sovereignty. Remember, uh, Satan offers to give these things to Jesus, but Jesus will, came back to take these things back. He wasn't going to just receive them from Satan. He's going to take them from Satan. That's why in Revelation eleven fifteen, for example, try not to get too far off, but in Revelation eleven fifteen, there is mention of this cry in heaven that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And so there is the clear understanding that Christ will one day be exercising and, and enjoying full uh, authority and rulership over all of creation uh, 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 and such. This is coming. It's not an if, it's a when kind of a proposition. So even though Satan is called the God of this world, he's God with a small g, ultimately under the sovereignty and uh, and under the hand of God with the capital G. And when we say that, we are referring to both Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And so he is God. Um, 
Um, matter of fact, another, uh, for those who are still kind of scratching their heads over the idea of the deity of Christ, um, turn to Mark. I, I just want to maybe take one more passage on this before we move on. But in Mark chapter 2, uh, we're reading Mark uh, as a, an additional thing here on these posts. Uh, we're going to be reading chapter 10 uh, and the next time we post on it. But here in chapter 2, um, when you read the passage, you see here in particular verses 1 through 12, this is the scene where Jesus is in a house and uh, he's in Capernaum. And there is a paralytic who is lowered down through the roof by four four guys, um, and uh, and he's laid before the Lord. And the expectation is that Jesus would heal him physically. But notice what he does here in verse 5. They lay the bed down where the paralytic was lying. Jesus is standing over him. He saw their faith in lowering him down. He saw their faith. And he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now that scene... Uh, is one again where the expectation was physical healing. But Jesus does something different and unexpected, and in the eyes of those Jewish leaders who were there watching, something blasphemous. Notice how the story goes on. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now understand something, you and I might forgive one another for hurting one another, sinning against one another, but nobody forgives sin but God alone. Uh, I'm still guilty of sin when I sin against you. It is God alone who has the prerogative to forgive me for that and has forgiven me for that in Christ, just to kind of finish that point. But they're not wrong in their assertion that only God can forgive sins. So notice what Jesus does as he goes on. Uh, But immediately, verse 8, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason uh, these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, uh, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? Now, think about that question. This this whole scenario that, uh, that, that is unfolding, ultimately, Jesus uses this to prod some extremely deep thinking. Only God can forgive sins. So Jesus knows they're questioning this in their hearts, like, wait a minute, okay, he's he's blaspheming, he's claiming to be God. Now, Jesus doesn't back down from this, by the way, he is claiming to be God. Uh, But notice how he goes about demonstrating this reality to them, or or explaining this reality to them. He says, well, what's easier to say to this guy? Uh, Your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and walk. Well, if Jesus were just human, the easier thing would be to say, your sins are forgiven you, because there's no outward evidence of this. I could say that, but it doesn't mean it's happening, but there's no way to prove or disprove it per se. But again, he's building on their assertion that only God can forgive sins. So then he goes on and notice what he does then. The easier thing again is to say something that requires no outward evidence, but notice what he does. But that in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power, and that word power there speaks of authority, exousia is the word. I have the authority to do this. Uh, That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorifying God saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, what does Jesus do here? He demonstrates his deity by forgiving the man's sins. They can't see that. They don't know it's true. So he says, so that you might know that I can do the thing you can't see, let me do right in front of you the thing that you can see. And he heals the man. He gets up and walks. 
just rise up. He has the authority not only to forgive sins, but he also has the authority to heal and to do that whenever he chooses. And so he demonstrates, he doesn't just simply say he's God, uh, just with plain words, he demonstrates it with power. And so the argument that Jesus never claims to be God, and by the way, there are times when he does overtly claim it, but he demonstrates it by his authority over uh, sickness, over the elements, the weather and such, over the demonic realm, uh, over all of these different realms. He demonstrates who he is and the authority that he therefore has. And so he is God. He is creator. He's also, again, sovereign. Uh, again, we saw that in chap in uh, Luke chapter four. Um, uh, in spite of, I should say, Luke chapter four. Actually, we want to connect the idea, the dots here between his sovereignty and also move into the idea of the millennial reign, where he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. Now, I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter nine. This is a great passage we read at Christmas time, but the passage was not really given uh, as a Christmas card kind of a reading. But instead, this passage is given. Uh, in Isaiah to help us understand who this one that will come is and the extent of his authority, or to give us a a hint as as to the extent of his authority. Now, you could probably recite this from memory because you've, uh, you know, you've seen, uh, of course, the Charlie Brown Christmas. Linus so eloquently expresses this truth, uh, but also you've seen this on every Christmas card, you know, Um, as long as Hallmark's been around. But here we go. Chapter 9, verse 6 of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, or Father of Eternity is literally what that means. Uh, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom— to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In Isaiah chapter 9, he is two, a number of things are brought out, but two things for our purposes right here. First off, his lordship, his sovereignty over all things. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He is the father even of eternity. Uh, like Micah, you know, um, 5 2, his goings forth are from old, from everlasting. And so he is the father of eternity. Uh, He is also going to sit on the throne of his father, David. So he's not only sovereign in totality, but he's also specifically going to also demonstrate his messiahship by sitting on the throne of his father, David. Now, this, as uh, Chris points out, is something that is reiterated in in Luke chapter one. So if you want to turn there as well, Uh, we'll put these, uh, these passages all in the notes here, by the way, so you can look them up again too. Um, But... Um, in in uh, Luke chapter one, verse uh, thirty three through thirty five, or I'm sorry, thirty one through thirty three, notice here what the angel Gabriel says to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and will bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So again, his sovereignty extends from all eternity past through all eternity future. He is, always was, and always will be. 
uh, the sovereign over all of the universe and creation. He existed before the creation that he created, and as its creator, he is sovereign over it. However, he is also, in the course of his dealings with mankind, and in particular uh, with Israel as his primary focus throughout the Old Testament, and then again after the rapture of the church, uh, he focuses through Israel in demonstrating his messiahship to these chosen people. Uh, He will sit on the throne of his father, David. Now, this is not a heavenly throne. David doesn't have a throne in heaven, but David does have a throne on earth. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, you'll want to read that passage because this is the passage where David, seeing sort of the inequity in, in himself having this wonderful cedar house and all of this, this sort of palace, but God is still dwelling in the tent uh, that was built during the time of Moses. And so, David sees this and says, this isn't right. We need to build God a house worthy of his name. Well, God says, I honor your wish to do that, but you can't really do that because you've got too much blood on your hands. He says this through the prophet Nathan, whom he sends to David. But he says, I will honor the desire of your heart, but instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house. Uh, And he goes on to say how Solomon will build the actual structure that becomes the temple. But God's promise to David is that he will build him a house or a lineage uh, whereby the throne will not depart from him. It will be um, one of his descendants will sit on the throne, ultimately even forever. And so this, this wonderful picture of this kingly throne of David is one that then again is, is reiterated to Mary and finds its fulfillment in the millennial kingdom uh, that we see uh, coming to be in, in, in Revelation chapter 20. We can turn there. We'll just read this. We spend a lot of time in Revelation, so I was hesitant to, to take time to read it again today, but what the heck? Let's go ahead and do it. So Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11, this is the second coming of Christ in the clouds in great glory, as he, as he mentions uh, in the Olivet Discourse. But here it is actually happening in Revelation chapter 19, uh, verse 11. Now, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. This again becomes a hint to what is about to take place in terms of him taking the throne of his father David and sitting there in in Jerusalem, ruling as king. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron, and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat of the flesh of the kings, of the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great, and I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. By the way, we'll be in that army. We're ta- we're reading about ourselves now. When Christ returns, even as Paul said in uh, Colossians chapter three, verse two or four, but he says that we will return with him in glory. And so here we are reading about ourselves coming with him. It's not about us, but I'm just saying, just to kind of send a chill down your spine. If you ever wondered if you were in the scripture, 
here you are. God is, is, is included us in this return of Christ, in this picture. We will return with him. Again, it's not about us, but what a glorious heritage to look forward to. When Jesus returns to establish his kingdom, we return with him. Um, and I saw the beast, uh, I'm sorry, verse 20, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who uh, received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeds from the mouth of him, proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And so he comes and he strikes down the Antichrist and the false prophet, and they don't even go to the judgment seat of Christ. They go straight to hell. They are in the lake of fire now. They are in the final destination first and early before anyone else who ultimately goes there. Uh, those who remain and fought alongside of Antichrist and the false prophet were killed by the Lord by the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. They are dead now. They are killed and they will await judgment, but they too will end up where the, uh, tragically, will end up where the Antichrist and the false prophet are. Now, verse 20, chapter 20, I should say. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw, so Satan is now cast out of the earth. He's already been cast out of heaven, Revelation chapter 12. Now he's being cast out of the earth. He's being put in the bottomless pit. And there he will remain during the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, which we'll read about in just a second. He is, he, is, he is having no effect directly upon the world during the millennium. Uh, however, after the millennium, there are those who are born during the period of the millennium who ultimately will, uh, Satan will go out and seek to deceive and will have some success and lead those who he deceives against Christ after the millennial kingdom in Jerusalem. Um, but that's another study for another time. Actually, it's been a study previously, but I'm sure we'll come to it again sometime. But here we are in chapter four, and here we go. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there seems to be two groups here. This, by the way, I think is an answer to another question that came in, I think from Philip, uh, a great question that came in, but the question of do we rule and reign with Christ or is it just the tribulation saints and those who died for their faith previously? Since it is, the millennial kingdom is primarily a fulfillment of prophecy to the Jews. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples, I, I, I'm fond of mentioning, when Jesus ascend, is about to ascend to heaven, they ask him, will you then restore the kingdom to Israel? This has always been the great messianic hope, is that he would establish his kingdom and Israel would rule and reign, being the head and not the tail and all of this. Um, here in Revelation, there seems to be mention of two different groups. Uh, there are those who uh, sit on these thrones with Christ, as we see in verse 4. But then uh, also, uh, toward the end of verse 4, we also see there is another group. Uh, presumably, it may be in view, two different groups here. Uh, those who survived, the, who were killed during the tribulation, who didn't receive the mark and everything, and they will rule and reign as well. So I think that we rule and reign alongside of so many of Israel and even other Gentiles who didn't take the mark during the uh, mark during the um, 
tribulation period. And so we rule and reign with Christ on thrones. Now, whether that means we sit on thrones uh, specifically right there in Jerusalem, or whether it means that we have seats of authority around the world uh, as uh, as the millennial reign extends around the world, even as we see in Daniel 2 and 7, um, we don't know. Uh, it may be both. It may be that, you know, we just, it speaks more to the idea of, of us having a seat of authority somewhere, but um, it, whether it's in Jerusalem or, or wherever, then we'll, we'll find out. But verse 5, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now at verse 7 goes on to speak of the end of the thousand years when Satan is released. So Christ is clearly the ruler in Jerusalem over the millennial kingdom. This is the great millennial promise uh, that was given. Now, there is mention in Ezekiel, by the way, that David will also sit on the throne uh, during the millennial kingdom. So there is sort of a split jury on whether the mention of David sitting on the throne during the millennium speaks of David through his son, uh, his, his son, the Messiah, his, uh, his, uh, in his lineage, the Messiah, who is this, of the seed of David, sits on the throne, and that may be what's in view. Or the other view is, is that David will also sit on a throne in Jerusalem and rule and reign as well, kind of especially so, since all kings were sort of measured against David. He was the man after God's own heart in spite of his colossal failings, although we learn a lot about grace from David in Psalm 51. Um, but again, another study. But I happen to hold that view, that, that David will also sit on a throne in the millennial kingdom. And after all, why not? Why not? I mean, if we're sitting on thrones, if if the uh, if, uh, uh, if in chapter 20, verse 4, there are others sitting on thrones in that, why shouldn't David? It, wouldn't ma- it would follow that David could certainly be among those. So I tend to take a more literal view of that kind of thing. So he is the ruler over the millennial kingdom. He is ruler over earth from the millennium, from his throne in Jerusalem, in Israel, from which he will rule and reign with a rod of iron over that thousand-year period of time. Now, that's not all. He is also the Lord of heaven and earth. And so he's not just the seed of David in, in his humanity who sits on the throne in the millennial kingdom. He, again, as we said from the beginning, and this is why I wanted to make such a point of his being creator and Lord of creation, the God of all creation, um, um, in the beginning, because as we wrap up the story, we are reminded that he is sovereign over heaven as well as on earth. And so, uh, for example, if I will, we'll go to a few passages here to finish out our study. Uh, and by the way, when I say finish our study, this is hardly a comprehensive view of all that the Scripture says about this, but this certainly should be enough to make the point. And on top of that, whet your appetite to do some further study on your own if you still have questions about this, uh, which, of course, is likely that you do. And so do some study, and, and uh, hopefully, again, this gives you a good starting point. Listen to what uh, uh, Matthew records Jesus as saying in his last chapter, uh, Matthew 28. Most of us quote 19 and 20, understandably so, when we talk about uh, making disciples and teaching them to observe and all of these things. But notice in verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, as creator, he was sovereign over it already, but now as the eternal God-man, uh, he lives forever, both as God and as man. Uh, we see this in the post-resurrection appearances. He still has a body of flesh and bone. And as 
not just not only as God who created all of creation, but even as the Messiah, as as the uh, eternal Word made flesh, the incarnate God, He also uh, has been given all authority on heaven and on earth. He said this during His uh, uh, ministry as well. The Father has given all authority to me for judgment and so on. And again, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and 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 make disciples. Um, what about Ephesians chapter one? Ephesians chapter 1. We've been in Ephesians for like a thousand years uh, on Sunday mornings. Not really. Probably. It's been about, uh, been a while. But uh, here in chapter 1, uh, notice in verse uh, 20 and 21, uh, which God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And so again, he has authority far above all principality and power and everything else. Uh, this is his. He is in that place uniquely uh, along with his father as he sits at the right hand of the father. One more here in Philippians chapter 2. Again, a very, very familiar passage when we talk about having the mind of Christ. Uh, a phenomenally important study in terms of our attitudes and what our hearts are supposed to be like as those who have been redeemed and who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But for our purposes today, let's go ahead and uh, and look in particular at verse 9, um, or verse 8, let's include that. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, uh, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, Again, heaven, earth, all created things bow the knee to him, both in heaven, above, above the earth and beneath the earth. And so the idea of his being um, the Lord, um, the ruler, the king, the creator, the Messiah, all of these things, these are all intrinsic to his personhood as Jesus the Christ. And so, and, and by the way, as I said in the beginning, I love to talk about the things of God. This is a great study, the person of Christ, not the study I did today, but the study of the person of Christ is one that is worthy of our lifetime devotion, uh, just to find out more, to learn more of him. Matter of fact, I, I mentioned the Jehovah's Witnesses earlier. I would say this is true of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, or anyone else basically outside of the biblical Christian historic faith. Um, everybody has a Jesus of some kind or another. Very, I, I, I'm not aware of a religion that doesn't tie Jesus in somewhere, whether it's an avatar or a great teacher, uh, a great rabbi, uh, uh, a you know again an avatar someone on this you know uh, uh, who leads us to deeper spiritual enlightenment and this in the astral plane or whatever it might be there's all kinds of you know or in uh, Mormonism the half brother of Lucifer the created being uh, in their religion or in uh, in uh, Jehovah's Witnesses again as a created being uh, but not Almighty God in their perspective I would I would argue biblically that they are mistaken in that perspective. This is my point. This is why we don't stop at a few verses and put together part of an understanding of Jesus. One that makes him just a man used by God 
or one that makes him God but not fully flesh. John the Apostle goes to great lengths, both in the Gospel and in his uh, in his first epistle, and we see this elsewhere too uh, in, in other writings in the New Testament, to, to demonstrate that Christ did in fact come in a body of flesh. Uh, as so he is both divine. Matter of fact, it's fascinating that it's John that spends so much time about this because nobody gives a loftier expression of the deity of Christ than John does, but no one also goes to such painstaking lengths to make sure we understand that he's not only God, but he also became a man. And so um, it's important for us to spend time studying the scripture, not just sort of reading devotionally only. That's important, but it's not the only thing we should be doing with our Bibles. We should be studying it, uh, taking a topic like this, uh, which is arguably the single most important topic you could cover in Scripture, is the person of Christ and thereby, by, by connection, not thereby, but thereby, by connection, the nature of God, the triune nature of God, which we spoke to at, at uh, a little bit today as well. This is important for us to study, to know Christ, not just know about him. The more we know him, the more we know about him, the more we understand about his uh, his 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 deity and humanity in the in the incarnation, the more fully we worship, the more in awe and wonder we find ourselves. So these are important things to spend time on. Let me encourage you to do that very thing. I I, I don't know that there's a topic in Scripture that I personally enjoy looking into more than this one. Uh, I love to talk about this subject. I love to. To, to, to delve deeply into it, always with a measure of caution that we don't misrepresent or make assumptions or, or uh, um, you know, come up with something heretical like Arianism or something like that. There's, uh, there have always been these heresies throughout church history of people who went too far in one direction at the expense of uh, um, some other element of his nature and, and such. So we want to be careful about it, but we definitely want to dig further and further in. We don't want to avoid, we want to understand greater. So... Thanks for asking the question, Chris, and give me a chance to go off on that topic for a little bit. I appreciate that. And hopefully that was helpful. And if you have any thoughts or questions, you're welcome to share them uh, both in the comments section on our YouTube channel, or if you want to email me at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com, you can do that as well. And I certainly look forward to reading. Uh, I try to read all the comments and I try to respond to a bunch of them, uh, whether in the comments section or by email, but a lot of them I do uh, take some time on a post and, and, um, and, and share in this context because I always think it's a good idea when somebody's wondering about it to to address it, because there's probably a lot of people that are wondering about some of the same things, or we may end up covering something in the process of discussing that that touches on something else somebody's interested in. I just feel like it's a good idea. So hopefully this was today. But Father, thank you. We praise you. We love you. We bless you. And we want to exalt you. And Father, as we consider the person of Christ, the eternal word who became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, both God and man, uh, the wonder of such a thing, uh, the the incredible revelation of who you are in looking at the person of Christ. And as Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But yet at the same time, he was with, uh, with God and he was God. Just magnificent, awe-inspiring, deep and thought-provoking. Help us not to help us not to sort of lazily set that aside, but to delve deeper into it, that our hearts might be lit up at the prospect, that our minds might be fully engaged and and overwhelmed with a sense of wonder at who you are, not just what you do, but even just who you are, that which is intrinsic to your very nature. We love you and thank you that you are 
the one who perpetually overwhelms us. And one day when we see you in heaven, I have to believe that that sense of wonder will expand many, many times over as all of the blinders will be taken off and the veil will be pulled away in a very real sense and we'll be in your presence worshiping. Uh, Father, I'm just amazed at, at the, the fact that we'll get to do that and I'm so looking forward to doing that. I know so many of us are. So, so Father, thank you for this time and this opportunity to consider some of these things and we just pray that this would again become a a part of our, if not the very heart, of our lifelong pursuit of knowing you better. Thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.